Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is composer-producer Clarence J. First of all, there's good news on the college front. Record label campus reps are actually making a comeback. Now, the labels basically dropped all of their college reps just about the time the CD started to take a dive. And the idea was there was no longer a good reason to have those campus reps if there was nothing to sell. That's all turned around now. And one of the things that turned them around was the fact that the labels began to think that they were using reps in the wrong way, and they were. Back in the days when CDs were selling, and before that, cassettes and vinyl records, then, yeah, basically what they were doing was they were trying to pump up sales on campus. Now it's a little bit different in a way. So what they're having the local campus rep do is a number of things, but mostly create content. So when there's a label artist that visits the campus, The campus rep is responsible for creating videos or maybe even taking that artist out before the gig and doing some local videos. Or if there's a local artist that's signed to the label, they may actually even do some videos for them. They'll also do things like organize meet and greets and actually organize gigs. The gigs might be more than playing. It might be things like a Q&A on campus. They'll also get to do social media, which, of course, they're really good at, and also a lot of market research because labels want to know what kids are actually using in terms of apps and how they're discovering music and what music they're listening to. There's a lot of data that you can get online, but sometimes the best data comes from actually talking to people. So now they're finding that campus reps are more valuable than ever, and they're hiring more and more, which is a good thing because there are so many people in the music business, and I'm talking about the business side of the music business in labels as label execs that started out as a campus rep. A lot of them don't necessarily go into the A&R portion of a label, but they may go into the other business side, into marketing or into sales or whatever. So it's a good supply chain. And for a while it was kind of dying and it's a really good thing that it's coming back. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop, and Q&A webinars. For a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now here's some interesting news. And this comes from Music Trades magazine. Music Trades is probably the best in terms of finding out data about the musical instrument part of the music business. And they do surveys amongst retailers, amongst manufacturers, and generally know exactly what's going on in terms of who's buying what and who's selling what. So the good news is that music retail was up 4% last year. 
And for a long time, music retail was going down and down. It's very much like the recorded music business. But now it's actually on an upswing. And if we look at the countries that generate the most revenue in terms of musical instrument sales, the United States is far and away the largest at $7 billion. Next is Japan, which is kind of interesting, at $2.5 billion. Germany is $1 billion. China is about $830 million, and Canada is $755 million a year. There's a big gap in between the United States and everyone else. That being said, it all adds up and it's all important. Now, if we look at the top 10 manufacturers that actually make the most money, this blew my mind because I didn't expect a lot of the data on here. The biggest manufacturer far and away is Yamaha at $4.6 billion a year. Second is Roland at only about a billion. Next comes Fender at $715 million. Kawhi comes in fourth, and who would have thought Kawhi? $633 million. Harman Professional is after that at $611 million, and Sennheiser is $521 million. Sure at $450. Steinway, $387 million. Gibson comes in ninth at $335 million, and tenth is Audio-Technica at $318 million. Okay, what kind of instruments sell the most? Fretted instruments far and away sell the most at about $820 million last year. Sound reinforcement gear comes second at 654. Next comes school music, which who would have thought? That's band instruments, 536 million. And fourth is printed music at 529 million. Who would have thought that? That's a big surprise. Percussion comes next at 460 million. Piano at 212. Mics, 388. This is all microphone sales, $388 million last year. Computer music at 351 million. Accessories, 407 million. And we always knew that that was the case. And finally, amplifiers at 253 million. And amplifiers is a category that's actually dying because many guitar players are now saying, I don't know if I need an amp anymore because I can use an amp simulator. So that's happening even in live situations these days. For the United States, where do most of the instruments come from? Where would you think? Well, you'd probably think China, but you'd be wrong. Most instruments come from Indonesia. Second would be Vietnam. Again, who would have thought? And tied at three is Taiwan and China. And number five is India. So we have a perception, and it's false, of where all the musical instruments are coming from if they're not made in the United States. And they're actually coming mostly from Indonesia by a long stretch in Vietnam after that. So anyway, this music report was very interesting in the fact that it gives you some hope that the musical instrument business is doing much better than we think. And it's actually getting a little bit stronger. It's not like it's growing in leaps and bounds like it has at certain points in the past 20 years. But in fact, it is a little bit healthier than most of us thought. My guest today is Clarence J who's a record producer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and a composer whose credits include music on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 charts, a Grammy-winning record, one of the largest viral music successes in history, music for film, and multiple Emmy-nominated TV shows. 
His broad musical spectrum ranges from creating music for Grammy-winning R&B group All For One through to the viral hit Friday, music for Glee, America's Best Dance Crew, America's Got Talent, and U.S. TV host Jimmy Fallon's Grammy-winning album. He also has a really cool studio based around a very iconic recording console. I spoke with Clarence via phone from a studio in Sherman Oaks, California. All right, let's go back to the beginning here. Give me your background because you have a very unique set of skills and I'm curious of how you develop them. So let's go back to the beginning. Okay, um, well, I was, um, I was born in Sri Lanka, uh, a little island uh, south of India. And uh, when I was five, my mom started, uh, mom taught me piano, classical piano. Uh, she, she's a pianist herself and uh, her father was an organ player. So music was always around. Um, so I started uh, with the, you know, the fundamentals uh, and I was learning piano for about six years. And then the war broke out in Sri Lanka. So we left to Australia um, when I was about 11, I believe. And uh, we moved, relocated to Australia, to Melbourne. And, um, and then I was, uh, I sort of stopped music for a little while. And then in my teens, I got back into it. Um, and then I accidentally started writing a song uh, on a little Casio, uh, Casio keyboard. And, um, and then uh, I started uh, uh, writing a little more and then got into bands. And that was, uh, that was pretty much where the music uh, love of, uh, I guess, creating music and uh, the idea of recording and all that stuff ca- came together. Well, let's talk about Australia for a second. I was just there in December, and I thought it was fantastic. I I loved it. I didn't go to Melbourne. I understand that's where the music scene really is, though. Um, Yeah, the Melbourne Melbourne music scene, Melbourne live music scene is really good. Um, uh, And, uh, I mean, it's got the whole, you know, Melbourne's got the club thing and all that stuff, too. But the Melbourne live scene is uh, extremely good. So, uh, you know, from cover bands through to, um, and, and obviously, and, and there's a lot of cover band work too. And also the um, a live band also, uh, uh, in terms of styles as well, there's uh, a lot of styles, even R&B and rock and whatnot as well. So yeah, it's pretty happening there. Well, you had a good amount of success in Australia, didn't you? I had, a, yeah, I would say I had a reasonable amount, but it, it was interesting because I, I, uh, I had the success uh, overseas when I was living in Australia. So that's what... That's what um, uh, prompted me to move to the U.S. Um, uh, particularly, a, uh, I ended up writing a theme song for a TV show called Growing Up Creepy. It was a Discovery TV show, and they asked me to produce it as well. And uh, this was in the early, I guess, early 2000s. And I was like, man, if I could do it from here uh, in Melbourne, maybe I should consider relocating um, to L.A. And uh, that was it, really. And that's why I moved here. Um, but I, I was working with bands over there. I was working with solo artists. Uh, I was working with uh, artists who got signed to labels as well uh, in Australia. And uh, I was also p- performing. I was still performing in Melbourne. Well, it's tough enough to get a gig like that when you're in the States, let alone when you're in Australia. How did that happen? Um, it happened through, um, it, was a, it was an artist that I was working with. And it was a, um, uh, her manager who, uh, who was basically, uh, I guess, hustling and doing the thing. And, uh, and basically he was like, hey, guys, we got a chance to uh, uh, pitch a song for a TV show. Uh, and uh, and uh, then they sent some visuals over. And basically we started writing. Initially we were writing in like a, a dark tone. It was uh, a sort of very minor. And they, we sent the first, uh, first draft over. And they're like, no, this is too dark. And we want something a little vibey. And I'm like, okay, here we go, one, four, five. Let's rock it out, you know. <laughs> 
and uh, and uh, that was it. Kept it simple, and then we went back and forth a, a few times with the lyrics, uh, you know, editing lyrics and whatnot, and then we had to fit it all into the into the timing, um, and uh, that was it. And uh, it was super exciting because I that was my first production break outside of Australia, um, and uh, it was a great gig. Well, that being said, you've had a lot of success in television, both writing for commercials and also for television shows, various television shows. So when you got to the States, what happened then? Okay, so uh, uh, I moved to the States in 2007, Bobby. And, uh, and initially I was like, well, what, what's, the, what's the rule here? You know, what's the game here? I was sort of confused, just like most people who even come to L.A., even from, even from other states in the U.S., you know, it's, it's very hard to understand the game and understand the, how, the, how the vibe is and who to meet, whatnot. So uh, initially I was like, you know what, Let's just, let me just be myself. Let's just, let me just write, let me just hustle, let me meet people. And uh, I was starting to meet people. And in the meantime, um, I, was, I was getting some small breaks on TV and whatnot. And, um, at, and at one point, um, I, was, um, I started a small company with a friend of mine, and we, we decided to work with a lot of young artists. Um, and uh, it was called Art Music Factory. And uh, a lot of young artists, we'd be churning out a lot of um, um, uh, basically pop songs, uh, practically one a day, and uh, write, produce, mix, whatnot. And uh, we'll also be doing videos for them. Uh, we had a great video crew. And uh, before you know it, um, one of the songs took off. It went viral. And... and it, it, there was this huge success within basically two to three years of me be, living in the U.S., which I didn't really anticipate, but uh, it was just an awesome success. Um, and uh, by that time, I was working on film, I was working on TV, I worked, uh, I worked with John claude Van Damme on a... Um, uh, I was actually doing a music supervision uh, gig as well, and I had to write a bunch of songs with that uh, for a film uh, called Full Love. And uh, then I was doing a whole bunch of TV stuff too. Well, of course, the song that was the big breakout for you then would be Friday with Rebecca Black, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, it was uh, it was a viral song. Uh, we, you know, we were basically churning out a lot of songs, and and um, and uh, even though I sort of called it, I still have an email that says uh, uh, the song slams like Kobe Bryant or something like that, you know, <laughs> and uh, it's a hit over there. So I still have that email documented at uh, somewhere. But yeah, it was, it was, you know, one of those moments where, you know, you, you really work it, you know, you, you make a whole bunch of songs. It, it is a numbers game too. And, uh, and, uh, one of them hit, someone called it, uh, I believe the worst song or something. And, uh, and, uh, before you know it, it attracted a lot of people and then people would go back and listen to the worst song. And, uh, and, uh, so many cover versions were done and it was a lot of likes. So it was, it was just, it was, it was a very strange situation, but, um, we, we just went with the journey and Glee covered it. Um, uh, Jimmy Fallon and, um, and, uh, Stephen Colbert did a great version of it. Uh, they did a live show too. And that was a, it was also a Warner release. And uh, then it was a whole, there was a whole bunch of covers done on it. And, um, and, uh, you know, it, it really opened a lot of doors. It also made me realize that uh, the game um, or the or the industry is, um, you know, it's uh, was starting to get even. In other words, you know, if you're an independent, there's nothing that's going to stop you um, from maybe getting a break of some sort, uh, and you could be anywhere in the world doing it too. Yeah, Friday was huge. Well, I think at the time that was one of the most viewed videos on YouTube, right? I think it set a record at the time. 
Yes, sir. We, we, we uh, in fact, beat Justin Bieber's baby to 100 million hits. Uh, I believe we, uh, don't quote me on this, but I believe we beat him about like two or three days. It was, we were getting about two and a half million hits a day on YouTube. So yeah, we're breaking a bunch, a whole bunch of records. Um, and uh, yeah, it was great. It was, you know, something that I, I could never write, you know, I was writing the song, and, uh, but I could never write that moment, no. Well, the interesting thing is where you really make money is when people start to cover your songs, and you had a lot of covers of that, so it was successful no matter which way you look at it, I guess, right? Yes, sir. Um, uh, well, there's, there's monetization in different ways uh, when something like that happens. Um, obviously, there is the, the licensing opportunities. We had a lot of licenses, anywhere from Coles, um, you know, uh, retailer through to uh, even, even a college marching band, you know, taking it on and, and performing it every Friday. Uh, some of it's expensive, some of it's free. So we, you know, but the whole idea was for me to just get as much publicity and get, get as much uh, exposure to the song. Um, and uh, even to date, it gets licenses. Um, on top of that, there is uh, uh, revenue and monetization in uh, covers as well. And that, that could be anywhere from streaming through to um, someone selling a CD even uh, through to um, uh, just iTunes downloads even. Um, in fact, we found out that um, The Birds' um, uh, lead singer, Roger McQueen, he's actually going to cover it too. I believe it's going <laughs> to come out sometime this year. Wow. <laughs> That's very cool. <laughs> So, uh, and, there's, and there's different ways to monetize, obviously, and things change. Uh, you know, YouTube is evolving and their, their partnerships and all that stuff uh, change as, as, uh, as it goes along, as technology moves forward. Uh, but it's just a matter of finding, uh, you know, someone, someone said to me once, it's about collecting the pennies. Yeah. And then it all adds up. So, uh, and that's pretty much been the theory. Well, considering that you'd think that Friday, it was a viral song, it was on YouTube, it was a big hit online, and when you look at it, you think, okay, well, there wasn't much money made from that particular avenue, but as you say, when you get all these other licensing opportunities, then that's what really brings it in, and you get enough of them, and there you go. Works out okay. Yes, sir. In, yeah, in fact, I believe we netted over over a major major label single, like top 10 single or whatever, uh, in fact, we uh, we probably sold about six hundred thousand downloads, so it was okay. Wow! Uh, in terms of just iTunes sales alone, um, however, um, you know the 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 at the time Billboard really didn't take into account the idea of YouTube. So pretty much post Fridays when Billboard took the whole thing in terms of uh, how they calculated uh, the Billboard Top 100 for US. And at our rate, we were probably top 10, even though we landed at, I believe, number 55 or 58 uh, on U.S. Billboard. And then the Glee version landed in the top 40 um, on Billboard. However, by today's standards, it was like a top 10. Yeah, I bet. Well, now the Billboard charts do take streaming and YouTube views and all that into account. So it's a little bit different. But as you say, they weren't as evolved back then. Exactly. I mean, they, yeah, they were going off the traditional, you know, uh, the, the sales and the radio numbers. So, uh, and obviously, you know, things have changed now and, and uh, there's, there are different ways uh, to get exposure and those things matter. And one of them is visual, visual exposure. You talked about writing a song a day and, and actually not writing it, but, but completing a song a day, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes you hit it, sometimes you don't. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, it, was, it was a lot of discipline uh, because we were busy and the pressure was on. 
and and it you know it went from anywhere from a, a, the most cheesiest to something very serious. So uh, you know you know I would I would uh, do anything from you know the whole track and and then melody lyric through to just the track itself. And at that point, um, you know it was it was a matter of we we do a demo and then. And then we'd send it to the singer. The singer would learn it. By that time at night, we're working with another singer. We're tracking another singer. Uh, so it was it was a lot of lot of a uh, lot of hard work, you know. And uh, and sometimes sometimes you you know you compromise a little bit on quality. Sometimes you hit it because the great songs come uh, very quickly as well. I think the good part about that is the time limitation, though, because sometimes having that deadline that you have to get something out. I think it really makes you think about, well, you don't think so much, you react instinctively, which is probably the best way to do it, and you don't overthink it. Absolutely. We, yeah, we never over, overthought anything. Uh, it was the whole idea was working with the, for the voice. So basically, we understand the voice, and we go, okay, well, that's something that, and, and also the, you know, the, the artist, type of artist. So you know, if, it's a, if it's a young person or teen or tween or whatever, it has to be age-appropriate. And vice versa, if someone older, obviously we had to write something different and also dress it up accordingly as well. Um, so, you know, and, and those things were the, the, the basic rules, you know, and, and uh, if it's uh, someone young, obviously they want to dance around and they want to perform it too. So those had to be taken into account as well. Uh, and obviously not overthinking it because uh, that way, once over, once you over, I believe that once we overthink it, the best ideas get lost. How did you get those clients, just out of curiosity? Sure. It was, it was a lot of, initially it was a lot of marketing. Initially we, we were just, I mean, we had, we'd hire cars and we'd actually have our banner and we drive around Hollywood. It was, it was, it was, you know, anything from that through to internet, internet marketing, we were still doing it at the time. Um, we were on Craigslist um, and, you know, we were just hustling everywhere. However, there came a point where it became referral based. So, so someone would, some kid will come to us and they'll be like, well, you know, their parents contact us and say, Hey, you know, we want a recording done as a little gift, as a, as a, as a holiday gift for someone. And then the word got around at their schools. So, and then we'd have more clients. So because of that, it had a long tail. You couldn't have been charging all that much. Uh, no, we, we, we were being reasonable. I, I, at the time, I remember we would charge any, anywhere from 2000 to 4,000 for a song and a video production. Wow. Um, and, and yeah, and we looked at it as it's a numbers game and, and we just had to, again, it was about the content just as we just had to get as, as much content as possible. And, and we knew that if one of them, you know, there's a whole bunch out there, then one of them is bound to hit. And we, at the time before Friday took off, we had a couple of other songs that were getting about 200, 300,000 hits independently. So we felt that it was just a matter of time before someone, it just ran. And we obviously had to keep the songs, you know, entertaining as well. And then when it came to the video, how much input did you have into that? We know we were, myself and my partner, we were, we were there at pretty much every video shoot. Um, so we would find the time to, you know, even if it's an hour or two hours, we'd literally get there just to be sure that, uh, you know, and also the, you know, the video had to be done to the budget as well. So even even on Friday, we we were supposed to have a we were supposed to hire a bus, a school bus, because that's part of the lyric. But we literally couldn't find a school bus or afford a school bus. So we'd like, you know what? Let's just get a car. <laughs> and then the lyric was like, oh my! So that's what happened, you know. So so the lyric was like so whacked in terms of someone's talking about the bus, but then there's you know a bunch of kids on the car. So that that 
it was it was just one of those accidents where he actually literally made that more even more entertaining. Yeah, the car was better when in the long run. I I can't imagine a bus how a bus would have been better than the car. Sure, sure, sure. And, and the whole conversation about sitting in the back seat versus the front seat, and, and it's sort of. I think someone was talking about, oh, is that a political statement? You know, <laughs> maybe it's like you know. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was it was a lot of conversation for sure. Okay, let's talk about writing now. You've composed for television and films and commercials. Do you approach them all the same? Um, no, um, because uh, like for instance, if it's if it's TV, there are restrictions that come with it. Uh, it could be a topic, it could be a um, it could be the timing, uh, and and uh, it could be lyrics, or it could just be music. So that that varies. And on the other side of it, the artist, it depends on. To me, it's about the voice and and how how you know the message behind that. So so those things matter. In fact, at the moment, um, uh, I, I'm finishing off a musical theater show uh, with uh, legendary writer Jeff Barry, and uh, it's called Jambalaya the Musical. Um, and it's uh, based in New Orleans, and they've had 16 shows to date. Uh, and we're just doing the fine, you know, uh, tuning of it, fine tuning of it. And, and in, you, know, you know, something like that, it's a different approach altogether, where we sit down and come up with the stories based on the book. Uh, in fact, we'd find we'd find like, okay, let's enhance this part here, you know, like, you know, filling out, filling out, basically extending the story. And uh, at that point, it's more lyrics and story. And then the music's almost secondary. Yes. But when it comes to theater, what I've always found is the fact that it's very melodic and that it's more melodic than you find on normal songs that you hear in the radio, although hits are, are generally like that, but there's much more melody, much more stretching using the vocalists to the utmost. Absolutely, and and how and how we we took the approach was, if we get the if we get the story right, and then then that those words would actually help us develop the mel- melody a lot more because the emotion behind those words, and we can extend them out because there are sort of no rules in that in musical theater. You know, you you create it for the magic of it, and and uh, I completely agree with you. Uh, uh, the notes the notes we can really go go far with the notes, and we can really show off the voices too um however we sort of revolved around the stories first just to just to be sure that the 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 stories had a lot of depth in the songs and then we'd sort of develop the melodies a lot bigger when you're composing for a commercial of course that's different because you have a time limitation there as well yeah i guess you do in television as well so it's it's much the same but and in film too for your cues but how would you approach a commercial as compared to a television show, for instance? Okay. Um, if it's a commercial, um, the, uh, you know, even some of the sounds, um, that, that would change. Okay. Um, because for me, you know, I, I sort of see commercial as, as, uh, you know, you're, you're sort of stuck with 15 seconds or 30 seconds. Okay. Yeah. And, and you have to hit it. You have to hit it. So at that point, the colors are very important and, and the critical message is very important. Um, on the other side of it, on TV, it, it, sometimes it, it's, it's a lot longer and there's flexibility and, and it maybe it doesn't need a voice as well. It could just be the music part, you know, mm-hmm. because there's something over, on top of that. So uh, the, 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 I, I, for me, I, I like that idea of uh, being restricted um, uh, in terms of the whole commercial stuff where, you, you know, you really have to nail it within 15 seconds. And, and get a very strong message out, which is tricky. And at that point, it's about, you know, 
it goes back to the very basics of you know the the, the melodies there, the messages there, and obviously the musical colors. Which would you prefer to compose for? I would say I think I enjoy commercials, even though I've had I've had some decent breaks on TV and film, um, and you know I, I think I think of, of the two, yes, but. Overall, I think the, what I love the most is, is a three-minute pop song, or maybe under <laughs> under these days. Well, speaking of which, you've had some great success with that. For instance, uh, All for One was a big success for you. Yeah, it. Uh, you know, I, I I was lucky to work with All for One. Um, uh, I I'm a I'm a friend of Delius, uh, who's uh, one of the lead singers, and uh, and he was like, man, you know, do you want to work on uh, on our album? And I'm like, are you for real? I mean, I grew up listening to you guys. You know, I was a, I was a, I was a huge fan of you guys and David Foster and and for you to ask me and he's like, do you want to do an acapella arrangement? I'm like, oh shoot, <laughs> you know, where do I start? But yeah. it was like it was just this amazing thing where arranging vocals and literally note to note for four singers, amazing amazing singers. It was for me. It was it was just so um, you know going one minute going from Friday uh, <laughs> with the whole so called auto tune thing. To go to Grammy-winning, you know, brilliant vocalist, it was just, uh, it was just amazing, um, and uh, I, I, feel, I felt lucky. Um, uh, I had uh, uh, Dave Way and Dave Rideau help uh, mix uh, a couple of the records as well, and it was uh, again, I, I never wrote a, wrote that, you know, I could never write that, you know, so uh, I was, I feel blessed about that for sure. When you were doing that, did you write out the parts or did you sing them the parts? Oh, um, I wrote them out in terms of, um, uh, well, uh, I have a fairly decent understanding of, of theory, music theory. So for me, um, you know, I, I would write them out. Then also I would actually play them with, um, with a piano and I'd, I'd record the whole thing. And then it was a matter of sitting down with the guys and arranging, arranging, going, okay, well, you know, how about, how about this person do this and this person do this? And then how about let's come together here and go unison here and then open it up here and tension release, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. so uh, yeah, initially was uh, definitely written out and then uh, put down on piano and then taken to the next level after that. So you didn't just write it out and then they read it. You taught it to them. Uh, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was, uh, I, I pretty much put the track down on a piano as well. That mm-hmm. way, you know, it was, it was, it was just easy to pick the notes and sometimes we change the notes and sometimes uh, harmonically and we'd be like, okay, well maybe that's, that's a little too much right there or, you know, whatever. So let's loosen it up a little. And, uh, and, uh, all towards the end, I remember we just, you know, we're like, let's go for a little bit of a gospel feeling here, add some really cool chords, you know, and, uh, and that made the vocals very intricate and then it opened up, you know? So, uh, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. Well, let's get a little geeky for a second here. You have a great studio and I've been to your studio and the centerpiece of it is your console. So tell me about your console. Okay. Um, well, well, thank you for coming to my studio, by the way, Bobby. I, I'm a huge fan of you. So you know, and I, I'm honored to know you as well. Um, I, in fact, uh, just going back to it, um, you know, I, I, um, I loved your book. That was one of my, one of my first books in audio engineering that I bought, which was uh, your engineering handbook. So thank you for that. So um, and now getting back to the, uh, my studio. Um, it's an RCA console. It is from the late 60s, 24 channels. Um, it was in RCA Studio A, New York. Uh, and uh, RCA at the time had uh, a console each at uh, the RCA studios. Some say that there were maybe two consoles at a couple of studios. 
but so far um, uh, I've pretty much uh, found out that there's only there was only one. So one in Hollywood, one in Nashville, uh, one in um, uh, New York, and one in Chicago. Uh, so uh, I was lucky to acquire this about five, just over five years ago now, and um, and uh, it's it's just awesome. It's a pre-API sound, so it's got that Melkor. Melkor blocks in it, which is Melkor 1731, which is pretty much what the API 2520 blocks came out of. Yeah. So uh, it's got pretty much a vintage API sound. It's very cool. I mean, you look at it and you go, wow, this just feels like history. (laughs) It's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, (laughs) yeah, you know, it's, it's, I mean, there's a a whole bunch of records that were done on it. Uh, In fact, as a matter of fact, my my good friend, uh, Jeff Barry, who was Phil Spector's writing partner, he wrote the big songs, Be My Baby and Chapel of Love, etc. When Jeff walked into the studio, Jeff's like, hold on for a second, I've seen this console before. I'm like, (laughs) where? He's like, let's see, New York? I go, oh shoot, it is from New York. He's like, RCA Studio A? I'm like, yes sir. He goes, I cut sugar sugar on this thing. Wow. (laughs) So... So yeah, it sort of made a you know an amazing closure, and then then to work with Jeff on a whole bunch of songs and records and a musical theater show, uh, it was just amazing. And uh, yeah, so this console is uh, it's got a lot of history. Um, as I understand it, the Chicago Chicago console had um, um, Alice Cooper and maybe even uh, the Guess Who recording uh, uh, American Woman on it. Mm. Um, so yeah, in fact, it was mixed on it too. So I think that's a great uh, uh, reference of the console is American woman um, get the guess who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not the only thing, though, that's in your studio. I noticed you were very careful about the gear that's there. So what you have is not only the most desirable pieces, I would say, that anyone would want in their studio, but you have excellent versions of them. So you look at these things, and they're, and they're all pretty much pristine, from what I could tell. How do you do that? Um, you know, it's, you know, I mean, when you love something, you, you know, you really, you really go after it with all, you know, all passion. Right. And, and to me, I love great vintage pieces. Um, and, and, uh, you know, part of that is finding the right piece and the, uh, what that, that sounds great to the ear. And the other is to maintain them. Uh, so, if, you know, I, I make a serious effort on, on if I, if I want a piece, I'd, I'd wait and until, until I get the right piece, number one. And then to be sure that it's paired with the right tech, um, you know. For instance, I have a great pair of Paltex uh, EQP One A's, which are, uh, you know, I I found one and I was like, oh my god, I love this, love the sound of it. I got to look out for another one. And also, I was lucky to have a very closely matching serial numbered Paltex to go with it, you know. So uh, things like that, where you know, some of it's a lot of luck, some of it's made to be sure to put the word out to the right brokers or the sellers know that you're looking for something like this and then the other is to be sure to maintain them as well um i have a ba6a which is in awesome um, condition a uh, a 175b uh mm. which i love for vocals that paired with a um, 1176 uh, is uh, is just amazing um and uh, on a uh, on a uh, tracking level i guess i've got the console and some vintage preamps as well two preamps uh like the v76s uh, uh you know, it's a great European preamp, and yeah. then, uh, also the the OP6 um, RCA, which is awesome too. And uh, I've got a few Neves, uh, etc. So you know, com- these give me the colors, and then they all hit the console as well. So uh, so that pretty much gives me a lot of options as well. Um, on, on on top of that, you know, besides the gear, 
I love I love uh, vintage pieces in terms of guitars and um, you know old analog synths as well, um, uh, and uh, even even speakers. Actually, um, I'm not sure if, if you had a chance to see them, Bobby, but I I ended up getting Chet Atkins' personal Altec 604E. I was just going to ask you about them. Yes, yes. So uh, yeah, a, a, fr- a good friend of mine um, uh, out of Nashville, Danny White, who used to own 16 Ton Studios. Uh, now he owns uh, the Sound Techniques USA uh, company. Anyway, so Danny was like, "Hey, buddy, I've got I've got these uh, um, speakers that you've got to have them because they belong with your console." I'm like, "What are they?" He goes, "Well, they belong to Chet." I'm like, "What for real?" And and, and I, then I googled the you know the studio pictures and it's uh, you know whatnot, and I'm like, "Oh my God, these are the exact pieces." And so he'd acquired them from um, uh, Chet's engineer. I forget his name. And and I was like, dude, I've got to have them. Thank you so much. And, and uh, we just, yeah, it was it was just awesome. So uh, that just pairs up well. Uh, in saying this, Bobby, uh, my studio, I've sort of made it into a hybrid setup. So I've got the whole analog thing, but equally, uh, I'm into the whole digital world and love the digital world too. Let's come back to the the alt text for a second. Do you work on them? Yeah, I do. Um, I work on them. I uh, I use them for inspiration. I crank them up when I feel like it. And uh, they're just amazing. I mean, they have they have just a, a beautiful sound, and uh, they translate pretty well. Even, even though I'm always checking, you know, when I'm creating stuff, especially I have a, a pair of PMCs, I have NS10s, and I have KRKs. So you know, between those, you know, I just keep flipping. I I use a Grace Design M905 uh, uh, controller, and uh, you know, I just keep flipping between, uh, and uh, you know, it's uh, they're pretty awesome. Well, the reason why I ask is I, I know they're not an easy speaker to get used to, but Ken Scott told me that at Abbey Road, way back when, that's what they used. Uh-huh. That's what they had. And he said that it was very difficult for them to get a mix together, but they knew once they got it together, it was going to work anywhere. But they just had to work you know, fairly hard because of just the way the 604s in, in the particular cabins that they had kind of worked in the room. Sure, and and you know my my understanding was didn't Abbey Road also have a lot of tannoys? They did, but those are the ones. But the Altex are the ones that can mention specifically. Okay, okay, yeah. I mean, you know, Altex can be tricky. I mean, even even like my console, the RCA console as well. Yeah, you definitely have to work them. Uh, but once you know them, and you once you know your room, uh, you know, you, you know what something sounds like. You know, and I've and I've been in my room. I sort of built built my room in two thousand and two thousand and eight. So now ten years, you know, in the same room, and I sort of got used to the room. And uh, once you get used to the room, and and you start listening to it, and you know what it sounds like, you just keep working it from there. So uh, I think that made it easier as well for me. Sure. As sure. opposed to going into a commercial studio and getting used to it instantly, you know. Right, right, right. You do a lot of different things, Clarence. What's the most fun to you? making pop songs because they inspire kids. And, and I think that's a lot of fun. Um, you know, the fact that someone goes, Hey, you made my day feel great. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, that goes a lot. That's it. At the end of, end of the day, cause that takes me back to me being a kid. And, and, uh, when I listen to these old records and whatnot, and, 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 and think about the days where I'd listen to, really cool music. And even, I, I mean, I grew up on ABBA and, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire and whatnot. So I listen to those things and I go, man, you know, they did something for me, you know, and they excited me. And if I could do that, that's it. I've I've achieved my goal, you know? Yeah, I get it. Definitely. Well, okay. That being said, what's the least favorite thing that you do? 
the least favorite thing is probably the business aspect. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and I think a lot of us musicians can relate to this because we are artists and we just like to create and whatnot. Um, so the business aspect and the legal aspects, um, you know, th- th- those are very important. Um, even though I don't enjoy them, I've, I've made an effort to understand the, legi- you know, the, the legalities and the, the business side of music. Uh, anything from a basic contract through to working with uh, artists and whatnot, just to know that, you know, it's uh, uh, good paperwork is very important. However, it's not something that I, I wish, I mean, I wish I, I, I didn't have to do it. I wish I could just shake hands and just get on with it. But uh, in, in the day we, uh, these days, we just really have to get those right, you know? So, uh, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, yeah, I've got to do it, but I don't really like it, you know? Yeah, sure. I understand. Well, okay. Last question then. What's the best piece of business advice that you ever received or maybe learned along the way? Business advice, I would say would be what I mentioned before. Now that I think about it, it was actually someone who, uh, it was Jay King. Uh, you probably know him. Uh, he, from, uh, lean on me. He sang, uh, 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 lean on me, uh, club nouveau. Yes. Right. Uh, Jay King. Yeah. Jay King. Uh, one day Jay King and I were hanging out and, and, and Jay King was like, man, how did you do this Friday? We you know you shook it all up and all this viral stuff and whatnot. I said, dude, this is just one moment for me. You sustained yourself. Okay. So how about you tell me the secret? <laughs> and, and literally he was like, well, son, collect the penny. Yeah, and and that's when a, a a bell went off because for me I'd sort of been doing that Bobby, but he spelled it out for me, and that means you know don't you know that you know even even the studio you know if if it's a client who wants something engineered or produced or recorded or whatnot, uh, you know uh, the, taking the approach of okay well let's work with these clients I mean you know be flexible and and give them something great but also be flexible with the budget through to uh, royalties to be sure that, you know, uh, you're keeping an eye out on every penny that's coming through. You know, it, it could be a $2 check. It could be a $5 check. It could be a really big fat five figure check or a six figure check, but to make sure that it all gets collected. And, and I think, I think that's the theory in terms of sustaining ourselves because there's a lot of ways to make money and, and, uh, the, 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 uh, the income, uh, in the music world or the music business is, 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 it's wide these days compared to the traditional models. So it's just a matter of acknowledging them and be making sure that, you know, they collected correctly. That's great advice. Actually for the digital age, it's almost like collect the fraction of pennies, you know, cause that, <laughs> well said, Bobby. yeah, I mean, that works in, in, in yeah. the digital domain, you know, as we're collecting fractions of a cent for a play and a view. Absolutely, it's that whole Bitcoin theory, you know, like buy a one 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 and one hundredth of a Bitcoin or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Same, same thought, same yeah, same same thought process for sure. Because there's so many companies, and these are companies that they don't even tell you because it's a compulsory license thing. For example, if you've got a song out and if you've written it, and if you're the publisher, it becomes a compulsory license. And at that point, they they already they're already monetizing, and then they will send you a note saying, hey, you know, here's uh, what we've collected, you know. And, and things like that are very important to keep an eye out on, and, uh, and, uh, and they, they add up a lot. You can find out more about Clarence at ClarenceJ.com, C-L-A-R-E-N-C-E-J-E-Y, Clarence J, J-E-Y, 
com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.